Uh, good evening, everybody. This is Catherine Lambrecht uh, with the Illinois Mycological Association. Um, this is our first meeting in March because we have a second one. Okay, so we'll go on to our program. Uh, Andy Wilson, who was a former president of the Illinois Mycological Association, I believe, as well as a long time, he was one of our club scientists for a while. Uh, he's moved on to Denver, but he sent a list of recommendations and Brian Perry was highly endorsed. So uh, Brian, I'm turning it over to you. All right. Well, hello, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks again for the invite. Um, it's always fun to come share my research and, and talk a little bit about fungi. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here so you can all see this. And then the way I want to sort of run the lecture is it's it's really hard for me to, um, to see, like when I share my screen, it's really hard for me to see the chat. So I'm going to have the chat window open. So if any of you have any questions during my talk, feel free to go ahead and post them to the chat window. And then I will periodically sort of pause during my talk if I see that there's some text there and I'll read it and address it. I love to give informal talks. So please feel free to ask any questions you want. And then I'll be around afterwards to answer questions as well. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and move on. Can everyone see my, my PowerPoint there? Hopefully if you give me a thumbs up, let me see if I can get the chat window open here. All right. Perfect. Okay. So what I want to talk to you folks today about, or this evening where you're at, is fungal bioluminescence. So just to give you a little bit of information about me, I am a uh, classically trained mycologist. I worked with, a, um, for my master's degree, I did a monographic treatment on a mushroom of genus, uh, excuse me, on a genus of mushrooms here in California before I went back east and worked at Don Feaster at Harvard for my PhD. So I'm a fungal taxonomist and a fungal systematist. And as my career has progressed, I've also become somewhat of a fungal ecologist with a lot of ecological work going on in my lab. And while I was working on my postdoc with Dr. Dennis Desjardins at San Francisco State University, oh, about, gosh, about 12 years ago now, we sort of got off on this very interesting tangent about bioluminescent fungi. Dr. Desjardins had just published a paper with some colleagues from uh, Costa Rica where they were describing several new species of bioluminescent mushrooms. And so when I came to San Francisco State to start my postdoc after getting my PhD, this whole idea of fungal bioluminescence sort of took off. And it's been this sort of unexpected, but absolutely fantastic tangent to what, what I really thought my, my main research trajectory would be, you know, when I got a position in university. So today I wanna to tell you sort of what we know so far about fungal bioluminescence. It's an absolutely beautiful phenomenon. I'm sure many of you have seen it before and rest assured there'll be lots of pretty pictures of glowing mushrooms in tonight's talk. But before I get too far into it, what I do want to say is that this is a, a joint talk from a number of people. So I do sort of the basic species discovery, species descriptions, and a lot of the phylogenetic analyses that you'll be seeing tonight as does Dr. Desjardins. And then we have two colleagues, Cassius Devani and Anderson Oliveira, who are both biochemists from the University of Sao Paulo down in Brazil. And together we've sort of formed a, a research team along with some folks from Russia that are really looking into the evolution and the biochemical pathways that are responsible for this incredible phenomenon that we call bioluminescence, All right? So I can get my slides to advance here and show you some of these. So fungal bioluminescence is really widespread across the tree of life. 
most of us are familiar with things like fireflies or perhaps some of the bioluminescent fish that we see in marine ecosystems or jellyfish. You've probably seen some of those at Aquaria. But as I'm going to show you tonight, bioluminescence is spread all across the tree of life. We see it in bacteria. We see it in animals. We see it in fungi. Okay, so looking at the, the slides I have here, up in the upper corner, we have, this is the, the classic anglerfish. And what we see is that anglerfish has this specialized appendage hanging off the top of its head. Inside of that appendage, there is a colony of bacteria and those bacteria are bioluminescent, okay? And in the middle of my slide here, you'll see this is a, a flask in a laboratory. And this is just bacteria suspended in solution that are producing light, okay? So by definition, bioluminescence is the production and the emission of light, which we measure in photons by a living organism. So we're gonna see that it's an actual chemical reaction that's going on inside the cells of these organisms. And I don't want folks to confuse that with something like fluorescence, okay? Um, I see a question there, mammals. So there's no mammals that we know that are bioluminescent, okay? Not yet, at least. So fluorescence is essentially very, very different from bioluminescence. Fluorescence is the absorbance of light and the immediate re-emittance of that light energy at a different wavelength, okay? So we think of fluorescence, you know, you think of fluorescent lights, things like that. In biological systems, we know that we can do things like take a UV flashlight and shine it at a scorpion. And we can get UV-induced fluorescence of living organisms. So what we see is that there's pigments in the cells of the, the exoskeleton in this scorpion here. And also we get pigment molecules in the outermost layer of tissue of these mushrooms that are fluorescent. In other words, they're absorbing that UV light and they're re-emitting it back to our eyes at a different wavelength. So in the photograph up top here, this is a rushless species. You can see in normal light, it has a red cap and this white stem. If you shine a UV light on it in the dark, what you get is this really amazing sort of aqua blue color to it. And you also get this greenish stipe now. So there's pigment molecules in there that are absorbing this light and re-emitting it back out. That's become a really popular thing to do in the mycological world, at least out here on the West Coast. Every time I go to forays or events, there's always someone there with a UV flashlight that's checking different species of mushrooms for the presence of UV-induced fluorescence. And it may be at some point in time that we can start to use that sort of reaction as an actual taxonomic character, okay? But I just want to make sure that folks understand that that's very, very different from bioluminescence. Bioluminescence is an actual chemical reaction occurring in the cells of organisms. It's a form of chemiluminescence and it's produced by living organisms. Okay. So as I said before, in marine ecosystems, we can think of jellyfish. We can think of, of fish that have bacterial symbionts inside of them. We can think of dinoflagellates. Right? So in marine systems, there's turns out there's a lot of bioluminescent organisms. And it's even been stated that at these really deep depths of the ocean, the only naturally occurring light is probably that being produced by bioluminescent organisms. In terrestrial environments, there's far fewer organisms that luminesce. We have insects and some arthropods, right? So we've got things like fireflies. This photograph that you see here in the right, this is a, a millipede species. It's known from the Southern Sierra Nevada, and it was just rediscovered a handful of years ago. And it's now known to be bioluminescent, okay? And of course, when we get into terrestrial systems, by far probably the most diverse and most abundant bioluminescent organisms, as it turns out, are fungi. And that's what we're gonna be talking about tonight. 
So as I mentioned before, bioluminescence is spread across the tree of life. And so I know this is kind of a hard figure to read on the slide, but if you look at this, you'll see that these are all, this is a big phylogenetic tree. So what this is, this is just a branching diagram representing evolutionary relationships amongst bacteria, archaea, and then eukarya here. So eukaryotes, right? Which includes animals and fungi and plants and all that good stuff. So in this tree, I put a little green arrow there and that's pointing to fungi. If we look at this tree, every place where you see the name of a group highlighted in some color other than white, all right. So any place you see that different color, what we have is that is a group where we have bioluminescence occurring. If we look at the biochemical pathways that produce bioluminescence in these different lineages of organisms, what we see is that they're distinct yet similar. And what I mean by that is that they're all biochemically very distinct. There's different molecules that are playing a role there, but they're similar in the type of chemical reaction. And we'll get into that in just a few minutes, okay? Bioluminescence occurs in a real number of distantly related organisms and 10,000 species coming from 13 different phyla. So I said before, it's incredibly diverse. We find it across the tree of life, over 10,000 different species of organisms are bioluminescent. So it turns out it's, it's pretty darn common until you get to the fungi. So when we get into terrestrial environments, fungi are by far the most diverse group of organisms that has bioluminescent species. But as it turns out, it's a pretty darn rare phenomenon in fungi, okay? All right, all right, at any rate, Early reports of fungal bioluminescence. It's turned out, turns out rather, that we've known about fungal bioluminescence for quite a long time, even all the way back to Aristotle, right? So in, in 300 BC, Aristotle talked about bioluminescence, which he actually referred to as phosphorus, and uh, pretty much distinguished that from fire. So if you think about a, a hunk of, of wood that has bioluminescent mycelium on it and it's glowing in the dark, Aristotle talked about that and he distinguished it from basically a piece of wood that was glowing from being on fire, right? So basically indicating that there was some living organism in that wood that was producing visible light. And then Pliny the Elder in the early ADs basically talked about glowing mushrooms that occurred at the, basically up in the tops of trees in the Gallic provinces. Okay, so we have these really, really early reports of fungal bioluminescence. Then we also have a lot of sort of anecdotal information about different uses of either glowing wood or glowing mushrooms. So Fernandez in the 1500s talks about Spanish soldiers in the West Indies. They would take pieces of luminescence. And then we get um, basically what he's talking about is these individuals are using pieces of glowing wood to essentially identify themselves in the trenches at night. Okay. And we see a similar use for glowing bioluminescent pieces of wood used in the trenches during both World War I and II. In uh, Scandinavia, we know that the bark and glowing mushrooms were used to go into barns at night. If you think about it, barns are where you store grain and hay, a lot of really highly combustible materials. It'd be pretty dangerous to take a lantern or a candle into those enclosed spaces. So what folks would do is they would use basically big hunks of glowing bioluminescent wood that had fungal mycelium all over it or glowing mushrooms to light their way. So basically what we see is that there's lots of anecdotal you know, story floor behind people using bioluminescent mushrooms and pieces of glowing bioluminescent wood for different purposes. Okay, so no matter where you go in the world, we find numerous reports of basically ritualistic or practical uses of these fungi, right? Now, so a little bit closer to home. 
we actually have some really interesting reports of fungal bioluminescence and it being used. All right, should I go ahead and, and start again? Please, we appreciate it. All right, so back to where we were. So just to go back one slide, um, basically what I was talking about was, you know, if you go through the literature, there's lots of reports of, of different cultures using either bioluminescent mushrooms or pieces of wood that are glowing due to fungal bioluminescence. And this goes all the way back to Aristotle. Lots of, you know, reports in the various sort of mycological history books and things like that. If you're into ethnomycology or ethnobotany, there's actually a lot of um, stories and folklore from around the world of different cultures using bioluminescent mushrooms or bioluminescent wood, basically um, for, for different purposes, both ritualistic and practical. And even here in the USA, we have uh, a pretty interesting history about it. So the turtle was the first submersible used in this country, and it was actually built during the American Revolution. And it was built to pretty much go out into harbors, bore holes in the bottoms of the US, or sorry, the, the British Royal Navy ships, and insert explosives so that they could sink these ships while they were in harbor. And they built this submarine. It went out a few times. It was never successful in planting any explosives. It never sunk any ships, but eventually the ship that carried around the turtle got sunk. So it's at the bottom of some harbor someplace on the Eastern seaboard nowadays. And if you look at these diagrams, what you'll see is that it's, it's just an enclosed capsule. And inside of it, you've got, you know, the operator and keep in mind that this thing is underwater. So it's completely sealed. And they realized early on that if you put a human that breathes oxygen in a sealed container and you put a lantern or a candle in there with that person, it's very quickly going to consume all the oxygen and that person will have nothing left to breathe. So they came up with the idea to use Foxfire. Okay. And for those of you that are from, you probably use the same term in the East. So Foxfire is basically wood that has the mycelium of a bioluminescent fungal species on it. And when you take that wood, you can basically go out into the forest at night and you can pull apart logs and if you find pieces of wood that have the mycelium of specific species growing on it, they will bioluminesce. Okay, and so the term for that in the east and the southeast is foxfire. So they use foxfire to illuminate the inside of this first submersible here in the United States. Um, and I see that there's a comment there, is the DNA sequence responsible for bioluminescence identified? Yes, to a degree. And I'll get to that at the end of my talk. Okay, or towards the end of my talk. So so far, we know over 100 species of mushrooms that we have documented either as having the mushrooms themselves that are bioluminescent, or so over 100 species have been described. We're at about 110 so far that we have either confirmed have bioluminescent mushrooms or mycelia or both in many cases, All right? And what we know about the basically the, the chemical biopathy that gives rise to them is that just like in fireflies and every other bioluminescent organism out there, it's an enzyme and substrate molecule reaction, okay? And in fungi, what we know is that the reaction is dependent upon the reducing agent NADPH, as well as molecular oxygen. And what happens is you get a compound molecule that we generically call a luciferin is going to be reduced by a luciferase, which is an enzyme. And during that process, in the presence of oxygen, what we're gonna see is that luciferin is going to be oxidized to oxyluciferin and it's going to give off water and light. Okay. And we've known this for quite a while. So if we look at fireflies or bacteria or dinoflagellates, anything that's bioluminescent, we know that there's a, a substrate molecule and an enzyme that acts upon it. And that's what leads to the bioluminescent reaction. 
but the actual molecules themselves or the genes that are responsible for producing those molecules inside the organism remain unknown for the vast majority of bioluminescent systems. So in fungi, my uh, biochemistry colleagues from Brazil and Russia have spent a lot of time looking at this pathway. And I'm not gonna go into this in, in a whole lot of detail, but I'll show you the, the figure, which is our current understanding of the way bioluminescence occurs within bioluminescent fungi. So what we have is it's a, it's a cyclic pathway which is catalyzed by a series of different enzymes. And so what we start out with is caffeic acid. Caffeic acid is a really common metabolite for any fungus that is breaking down wood or plant material. It's a really common compound and it's really widespread in the environment. So it's highly abundant. So we're gonna have caffeic acid. It's gonna be acted upon by an enzyme. It's gonna be catalyzed into another molecule known as hispidin. Another molecule is going to catalyze that into something called luciferin and the, the chemical name is 3-hydroxyhispidin here. And so here we have the luciferin molecule made. This is the substrate molecule. And then the enzyme, which is a luciferase here, is shown as L-U-Z in this little red box, in the presence of oxygen, is going to oxidize luciferin into this really high energy, unstable intermediate molecule, which is gonna really quickly decompose. And when it decomposes, it's gonna give off carbon dioxide, and importantly for us, it's going to give off light. Okay, so this excess energy as that molecule is going from a high energy state to a low energy state is going to be given off as light rather than something like heat. Okay, and then that oxaluciferin molecule is going to essentially be um, pyruvic acid is going to be removed. Another enzyme is going to act upon it to convert it back into caffeic acid. So what this means for this chemical reaction then as long as there's oxygen, and pyruvic acid and these enzymes are present, it's just a cycle. It's just gonna to continue to go until this thing runs out of caffeic acid. So if you were growing a, a mushroom in culture or in some growth medium, if there's no caffeic acid, even if it's a bioluminescent mushroom, it can't bioluminesce, okay? Or if it runs out of caffeic acid, that bioluminescent reaction will pretty much cease, okay? So that's really what we know about um, the reaction, how many photons are, ah, that depends on the species. And we're also gonna see that it's, um, it follows a, it's sort of cyclic as well. Okay, so it has a circadian rhythm to it. So what we see is that unlike other organisms, so if we think of fireflies, and you folks should all be familiar with those, you know that they have bursts of light. So when they're doing their little mating flights or nuptial flights, they'll light up and then it really quickly extinguishes. If we think of diatoms that are being tumbled in the surf in the ocean, surf in the ocean we know that they produce light, but then it's extinguished pretty quickly, okay? In fungi, because of the way this chemical, biochemical pathway works, excuse me, it continues 24 seven. So there's been some nice studies done by our colleagues that show that there is a circadian rhythm where we'll get periods of low and periods of high light production, but it goes on all the time. So there's a few bacteria that will produce, the few bioluminescent bacteria that are, that'll produce light all the time, but fungi are really unique amongst the bioluminescent organisms in the sense that they produce light 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is pretty neat. So if you have one of these growing in culture in your laboratory, any time of day, you can go and look at it in the dark and it's producing light. You don't have to shake it or harass it or do anything to it like you would diatoms or some other organisms. Okay. Now I kind of skipped over in the beginning for obvious reasons, but I didn't really get a chance to go into why organisms bioluminesce. So if we think of marine organisms, we know that there's a whole suite of reasons why they do it. It might be things like 
prey attraction. So you can think of an angler fish trying to attract prey items to it that are attracted to the light. It could be predator avoidance. It could be something like trying to find a mate, right? So there's lots of different hypotheses and lots of different uses in different organisms for bioluminescence. I will get to what the fungi are doing or what we think they're doing in just a little bit, okay? But I just realized I skipped over that, so I just wanted to come back to it. So hopefully that clears up at least a little bit about how different the fungal bioluminescence system is. And until probably a decade ago, we really didn't know a whole lot about this chemical pathway. And it's really because of the molecular tools that we have at our disposal nowadays that we've really been able to, you know, in the last decade or so, really dive in and begin to really pull apart this pathway and understand it in greater detail. Hopefully the next question you're asking yourself as well, who are the bioluminescent fungi? And it turns out they're all mushroom forming species. So we know if we look at the fungal kingdom, you've got ascomycetes and basidiomycetes, you've got all these other things like zygomycetes and chytrids and all these wonderful groups. All of the known bioluminescent species are part of the basidiomycota. They're all mushroom producing and they're all part of the subphylum agaricomycotina, okay? In addition to that, there are all things that produce white spores. And in the old days, we would have put all of them into this family called the Tricholomataceae, which since you know the old days has really been broken up into a number of different families, okay? But they're all white spored species and almost all of them are saprotrophs, meaning they break down dead organic matter as a food resource. There's one exception to this, which is a parasite, and I'll talk a little bit about that. And what we've discovered through my work and the work of my colleagues is that these species occur in four distinct evolutionary lineages. So if you think about the big tree of fungal life, so what we're looking at here, this is just a big evolutionary tree. I'm not going to go into these in any detail. Um, I'm sure you've seen them in, in talks many times before, but all they are is a branching diagram that represents the evolutionary relationships amongst organisms, whatever it is that we're looking at. In this case, we are looking at the subphylum agaricomycotina. So down here, we'll see this is the bolete, so your porcinis and things like that. And then everything else we see up above that are all mushroom producing groups. So all these different genera like Inosabi, Agaricus, Tricholoma, Entoloma, Pluteus, Armillaria, Mycena, all those wonderful genera that you're all familiar with. That's what's being shown here. And I basically grouped these different families or different sort of what we call clades into different colored diagrams. So if we look at this, this is just a, a big picture of the evolutionary relationships of the, the agaricomycotina. And then what I did is I went in and at the tip of every branch that's a bioluminescent species, I've put a little yellow dot. And so what you can see here is that we have four main groups or four evolutionary lineages, if you will, that are bioluminescent. Up here in blue, we have the Mycenaceae, and this, this here means sensu strictos. What that means is in a strict sense, so in the sense where we're just thinking about the genus Mycena, and it's real close relatives here. So that's by far the largest and most diverse group. Then down here, we have Armillaria. I'm sure all of you are familiar with the genus Armillaria. This is the genus that produces the bioluminescent wood that's known in the east and the southeast as foxfire. We also have Omphalotaceae, so you probably know Omphalutus ludens or Omphalutus olivacens or the two we have in North America. They're these big uh, wood decay fungi that are luminescent, probably one of the most commonly encountered bioluminescent species in North America. And then we have this other group that we've I've labeled here as the Lucentipes clade. And this is one that we discovered as part of the work 
when we first started looking into bioluminescence. This one was a real surprise, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it in just a few minutes. But we basically have just a handful of species here, which probably represent one, if not two, undescribed genera of mushrooms that we're, we're still working on them. We'll be publishing those at some point as, as a new genus or a new genera in the coming month to coming years. Okay. So let's go through and look at some of these. So just to show you all sorts of, of lovely, pretty pictures of the different lineages, the first one we'll look at is the Omphalotaceae family. And this is really the jack-o'-lantern mushrooms. So Omphalotus olerius is one that we have in Europe. We don't have it here in North America. We have two very similar species, but these are big mushrooms and they grow either off of stumps or rotting wood underground, or even off of standing decaying logs and things like that. They're very large and they can be quite bright or they can be really faint and hard to see. It really just depends on the specimen that you have in hand and how old it is, what kind of shape it is. If it's drying out, is it really old? It's not gonna be very bright. If it's a fresh, young, new mushroom, it's probably gonna be much, much brighter, okay? So these are really common in Europe. They're poisonous to mammals, okay? So these are ones that we simply avoid eating. As we're gonna see, most of the mushrooms that we're gonna talk about tonight, there's none of them are good edibles, with the exception, you could argue that armillaria is, but all the other ones that we're gonna talk about are not something you would really collect and eat, okay? In this case of Omphalotus, both the mushrooms and their mycelium glows. And then in the Western US, we have Omphalotus olivacens. Okay, this is one that was described from California. It's really common throughout California and all up into the Pacific Northwest. Again, just like its European counterpart, it's poisonous, but the mushrooms and the mycelium glow. And this is one that I've personally collected this and went and locked myself in a dark room for a good 20, 30 minutes and never saw a single bit of light coming off of it. Whereas other populations, you can collect it, bring it into your bedroom, turn off the lights, and within two seconds, you can see it glowing. So the variability in the amount of light these produce tends to be highly variable, at least within Omphalotus olivacens. We have reports of incredibly bright luminescence to no luminescence at all, okay? And then still staying within that Omphalotaceae family, we have a bunch of tropical or Southern hemisphere species in the genus Neonothopanus. And we've got a handful of these that have been really important for our work. The first one that we discovered, or this one, we didn't describe it, but this is one of the first ones we found doing field work is Neonothopanus nambi. And what you'll see is if you collect this thing and bring it back to wherever it is you're staying and wait until night, and it's a, you know, there's no moon out, or you can lock yourself in a room that's completely dark and you turn out the lights, what you'll see is this. And so this is an incredibly bright bioluminescent species that we find throughout both the paleo and the neotropics. This photograph that I have here was taken in Micronesia. We had been out collecting all day in the jungles of Micronesia, brought these back to our um, apartment that we were renting and I had them in a little box with a clear lid on it. And we took off and went into town to get supplies for dinner and things like that. We came back and when we walked into the apartment, there were no lights on and we could see my entire box was just glowing sitting on the tabletop. So these are really very, very bright, really beautiful mushrooms. The locals in Micronesia refer to them as ghost ears. And the reason for that is because these grow on the sides of standing trees and they're kind of ear shaped. And so they reminded them of, they think that their ancestors go into the forest when they pass on. These are their ears, they're coming off of the trees. So hence the term ghost ears. We don't know if this one is edible or poisonous. Chances are because it's close related to Omphalotus, it's probably a toxic species that you wouldn't want to eat. 
All right. And then this one has been really important for us as far as understanding the, the biochemical pathways. This is one that was described from Brazil uh, back in the 1840s as agaricus gardneri, when everything described that had gills was an agaricus. And it was sort of rediscovered uh, back in the, um, in the early 2000s and discovered that it was also incredibly bright and bioluminescent. And this one's really amazing because it only grows at the base of these palms in these calcareous soils um, in basically the, they're sort of like these, these dry sandy soils um, not too far from the Amazon in Brazil. And it turns out this thing grows really abundantly. It's incredibly bright when you see it in the, in the forest at night. And when you bring it back to the laboratory, it's, it can grow in culture. You can use it to inoculate um, leaves and other material. And it's really, really bright. What's really important about it is you can find huge amounts of it. So when we do these biochemical assays, you need a lot of material to extract the molecules from. So we're gonna be trying to extract the substrate molecule and the enzyme. You can't do that with just a little teeny bit of tissue. You need a lot of it. And so this species, Neonathopanus gardener, I was really important because our colleagues in Brazil could go out and collect this huge bags of it and bring it back to the laboratory. And so what you're seeing here, these are just side-by-side -side photos of what it looks like in the light and in the dark. And again, both the mushrooms and the mycelium grow, or sorry, glow in this species. And of course, we can use it to, you can basically go out in the jungle, you can collect palm leaves, bring them back and sterilize them by either cooking them in a pressure cooker or an autoclave, if you have one of those. And you can then inoculate this and just grow huge amounts of it in bags like this. Okay, so really important for us for our biochemical studies. So I'm gonna stop here and take a look at the chat really quick. So is it possible to clone them? Um, all fungi can potentially be cloned simply by taking a hunk of tissue off of a growing mushroom and putting it into a Petri plate and letting it grow. So yes, we can certainly clone them. But a lot of mushrooms won't reproduce and make fruiting bodies in the laboratory. So you can certainly make lots and lots of Petri plates full of the mycelium but it can be very challenging to get the fungus to actually produce a mushroom in the laboratory. All right, so that was the Omphalotaceae. Now we're gonna go in and look at some members of the Physolacriaceae. And this is one that you're all familiar with undoubtedly. So this is Armillaria. In the old days, we called everything in the United States Armillaria melia or Armillaria ostoi. We now know that there's at least a dozen species and the genus Armillaria that occur throughout the United States. And I'm sure in California alone, we probably have a dozen species. As you move across you know, the West to the Midwest to the East, there's probably many, many more. Okay, so it's a really big diverse group, very common. They tend to grow in these huge clusters and they're edible. So here in California, people will go out and they'll collect big clusters of these and they eat the stipes. So they'll throw the cap away and peel the outer layer of the stipe off and then cook it up. Seems like a whole lot of work for, to me for probably something that's not very delicious, but people do collect them and eat them. Some species of armillaria are thought to be saprotrophs. A lot of them are assumed to be root pathogens. Okay, these are also the, some of the largest organisms that we know in the world. You've all heard of the humongous fungus. That is a species of armillaria. And it turns out that our Northern temperate armillaria species, the mycelium is bioluminescent, and then the mycelium tends to form these really big, thick, intertwined things that we call rhizomorphs. So you can imagine like a piece of yarn where you get all these individual strands of fungal hyphae all 
twining themselves together. And then they produce these really thick, dark pigmented walls. And we call those rhizomorphs. And those rhizomorphs are essentially exploratory organs that they'll really grow all throughout some rotting wood with to explore and look for resources. So it turns out both the rhizomorphs and the mycelium glow, but the actual mushrooms don't. And so what you're looking at in these photographs here, this upper one up here, this is just the mycelium growing on wood. These dark structures you see are the rhizomorphs. Here's a nice picture of the rhizomorphs here. Here's what these look like when you grow them in culture. So what you're seeing here, these really dark lines that are all branching out and really bright here, those are all the rhizomorphs that this fungus is producing in the petri plate in which I was growing it. And then over here, of course, we have foxfire. So this is just a piece of wood that is infected with the mycelium and rhizomorphs undoubtedly of an armillaria species. And it glows because that mycelium is bioluminescent. Now for a long time, we always said armillaria, the mushrooms don't glow at all. It's just the rhizomorphs and it's only the mycelium. Mushrooms are not luminescent. And I'm sure most of you know who Taylor Lockwood is. Well, Taylor was doing some work down in New Zealand. Taylor has become one of the you know, foremost photographers of bioluminescent mushrooms. And he was down in New Zealand looking for interesting things to photograph. And he came across a species of armillaria. And out of curiosity, he set it up in his little dark room and took a picture of it, a very long time exposure. And sure enough, this thing has bioluminescent mushrooms. So here we have a species of armillaria and it's really just the pileus. It's really the edge of the pileus here and the cap, just the margin of it that are, that are luminescent. Okay. This was the first report we had of an armillaria having bioluminescent mushrooms. We'd known about the mycelium and rhizomorphs for quite a long time, of course. We'd never had any evidence of the mushrooms actually glowing until Taylor went down to New Zealand and took these photographs. And more recently, our colleagues in Brazil have collected something and sent it, well, they sent us material during the pandemic. We haven't had a chance to get our hands on it yet and look at it under a microscope. But based on the photographs, we think that this is another armillaria species from Brazil, potentially an armillaria. That's why I have a question mark there. We won't know until we get a chance to look at it up close. But if you look at this, it has basically, it looks very similar to an armillaria. It's got a little veil right there. And in the darkness, the cap is luminescent. So we may have a second bit of evidence to suggest that some armillaria mushrooms, in addition to their mycelium and rhizomorphs, are bioluminescent, okay? All right. And then finally, on to the next group. And this is that clade that I call the Lucentipes clade. So this is one that we discovered when I first started working on the project. Um, we were looking at these species. Turns out I sequenced their DNA and realized that they are very, very different than the genera where they were described. So when I came to San Francisco State to do my postdoc, Dennis Desjardins had just published a paper with colleagues, um, Capillari and Stevani, and they named two new species, Geronema viridolucens and Mycena lucentipes. And I went out and got this material when I first started my postdoc, and I was sequencing the DNA from it and doing these evolutionary analyses to see who it's related to. And it turns out these two species form an entirely different lineage of bioluminescent mushrooms. Okay, so this was a new lineage of bioluminescent mushrooms for us. So we thought this was a Geronema species. It turns out it's not, it's probably not a member of the genus Geronema. It probably belongs into a totally new genus that we need to describe as such. Um, and again, this is from Brazil. In this case, only the lamellae, so only the gills are luminescent in this species. 
And then the other species is Mycena lucentipes. And this is a really common, really easy to find bioluminescent Mycena down in the Atlantic rainforest in Sao Paulo state in Brazil. And this was also in that paper that was just published right when I started my postdoc. And then the day that the paper came out in the journal Mycologia, it actually had the cover of Mycologia as well. That same day that it came out, I got my DNA sequences back and I analyzed them and I got to walk into my boss's office and tell him that he described this mushroom in the wrong genus, which didn't make him terribly happy. But basically what we see is that Geronema and Mycena lucentipes both fall out in this different clade down here. So very distantly related to the group that we thought they belonged in. So it turns out these are probably at least one, if not two new genera that we need to describe. Now Mycena lucentipes is also really special because it's the first, not only the first mushroom, but also the first bioluminescent mushroom to be featured on a US postal stamp. So for those of you that know Taylor Lockwood, one of Taylor's lifelong dreams has to been to get one of his mushroom photographs on a US postal stamp. And he finally managed to do it just a few years ago. So the US Postal Service released a series of stamps called Bioluminescent Life. And on each one of them, there is at least one, if not two, depending on how many stamps you bought, uh, of these stamps that have Taylor's beautiful photograph of Mycena lucentipes on them. So pretty special for us to get that on there. All right, and then finally on to the most important group. This is Mycena, the Mycenaceae family. And here's one that you folks should be familiar with. This is something you absolutely have out in Illinois. Um, this is Pinellus stipticus, and it may not look like a Mycena, if you know what Mycenas are, but I'm gonna tell you today that this is really a Mycena. So Pinellus stipticus at some point will be moved into the genus Mycena, and it will become Mycena styptica. Okay, so this is based on both morphology and uh, molecular DNA sequence information. Pinellus stipticus is really common throughout the Northern hemisphere. Um, it's, it's really bitter. If you try and eat it, that's where the styptic names comes from. It's really bitter and astringent. So it's not anything you would ever collect and eat. It's also pretty darn small. And what's pretty cool about it is that in Eastern North America, um, these mushrooms and the mycelium is bioluminescent. When you get to Europe, they're not. When you get to Western North America, they're not, we think. So here it looks like we may have populations of this mushroom, some of which are able to bioluminesce and others that aren't. Okay, and I'll say more about that later, but this would be one of the more sort of common bioluminescent species that we could see here, um, at least in Eastern North America and probably in the Midwest undoubtedly as well. And then we have a whole bunch of awesome Mycenas. This is the group that I've worked on for my whole career. Um, this is my, my first fungal love, as I like to say, is the genus Mycena. So I have lots of photographs of these because this is really the group that I've focused on. So I'm just gonna run through these just to show you how beautiful some of these are, tell you a little bit about them. So the first one is Mycena chlorophos, and this is one that is really common in both the Asian tropics and the South Pacific. Both the mushrooms and the mycelium glow. And this is one that you can see from 20, 30 feet away very easily. So when we're doing this kind of field work, what we do is we wait for nights when there's no moon or we go out before the moon rises. We go out into the jungle at night wearing our headlamps. And then when we get to an area, we turn off our headlamps and we sit there and we let our eyes adjust. And as we do that, we'll start to see little glowing patches off into the jungle. Okay. 
and then we'll go wander over and find them. Mycena chlorophos is really easy to see because it's so incredibly bright. Okay, so a really common one, probably one of the most commonly photographed bioluminescent species in the tropics. Get this to advance. Sorry, that's what that looks like when you see it without light. We have Mycena luxcoli, another pretty similar looking species. Again, common in the Asian tropics. And what's really cool about this one is that there's been some really nice work done on it, where they've shown that these mushrooms attract nocturnal spiders. Okay, so these spiders are coming to the mushrooms and they're eating other insects that are attracted to the light. So these spiders are using the mushroom as basically a, a prey attractant and they're just hanging out there waiting for these other insects to come along so that they can prey upon them and use them as a food resource. It's really amazing if you think about it. Mycena citricolor, this is one that is a parasite. So this is the one, or really it's a pathogen. This is the one species of bioluminescent mushroom that we know so far that's an actual pathogen. And this one attacks something very near and dear to my heart and that's coffee. So this is a Mycena species. It's a really virulent pathogen on coffee. And it's pretty cool because it produces sexual structures, which are its mushrooms, but it also produces asexual structures, which is not very common in the mushroom forming fungi. And in this species, it's just the asexual structures and the mycelium that are luminescent. And I won't go into this in a huge amount of detail, but what you're looking at here, these are these little asexual structures called stilboids. And this is a little diagram from an old paper here. And what you see, you have this little stalk. And then on top of the stalk, you just have this little cluster of cells, which has these sticky hairs all over the surface. And this little structure disarticulates very easily in this is an asexual propagule. So you can imagine if you had a big coffee plantation and you had this pathogen in there, these things can, they're incredibly small. So here is a scale right here. You can see this is a mushroom. This is a one meter length here, or sorry, one, one meter, that'd be a huge mushroom, one millimeter length. This thing is probably two millimeters high, right? And this little tiny cap on it has gotta be maybe a quarter millimeter in diameter. So very, very small, very easy to get disseminated by wind and rain. So what this fungus does is these little asexual structures grow all over the surface of the coffee leaves that they're infecting. When wind comes along or rain comes along, they can very easily disarticulate and then spread that infection to other leaves or other individual plants. So if you go down into coffee plantations, and I've, I've never done this, but I really want to, I would love to be able to walk out at night and just look at the coffee plantation and walk through that coffee plantation and see if you can find these things luminescing in coffee plants that have been infected with this fungus. It's pretty cool. And then of course, everybody's favorite, this is Philobolitis manipularis. Again, um, I have it in air quotes there. This is Philobolitis. This is really a species of Mycena. So all of these poroid mycenoid taxa that we have in the tropics, all of them actually belong in the genus Mycena based on both morphology and molecular evidence. So this at some point will be Mycena manipularis, really, really common in the Asian tropics, really common throughout the South Pacific. Notice that it forms tubes instead of normal gills, like a normal Mycena mushroom would. So this one, very, very distinct, very easy to recognize, and by far one of the most commonly photographed bioluminescent species in the world. And when you find these in the jungle, you can find whole logs just covered with them. And so what we always try and do is very carefully bring those logs back to wherever we're staying and wait until nighttime so that we can photograph 
these gorgeous mushrooms, right? They're incredibly bright. What you get is the stipe is really, really bright. And it's so bright that it illuminates the underside of the cap. The cap's not actually luminescent here. It's just the stipe. These were ones that we collected in the field. They sat in our appointment all day. And then eventually, or they sat in our, our apartment all day. And then we came back at night and we were able to photograph them. And they will glow for hours and hours and hours um, as long as they stay moist, okay? All right. And then finally, on just a few more, Rhodomyces, a genus also should be in the genus Mycena. Um, we have an, one or two species that occur in North America and a bunch of them that occur in the tropics. And when you see them at night, it's just the base of their stipe that is luminescent as well as their mycelium. And for a very long time, we assumed that none of the species that occurred in the Northern hemisphere glowed like the ones in the tropics do. And so just this last year, pre-pandemic, this is back in January of 2019, Maybe four last, that is. Um, I was up at there's something called Soma Camp, which some of you might know about. The Sonoma Mycological Association does this wonderful weekend during MLK weekend. It's a whole three-day event where there's workshops and talks and cooking demos and forays. Really nice event. Um, and I always go up every year and give a workshop and then help do the mushroom ID. And Alan Rockefeller, who I'm sure you folks have probably had give presentations before, probably about bioluminescence, no doubt. He's really gotten into to bioluminescence. And so he and I were up there together um, and someone brought in this Rorodomyces rorida and it's growing on an acorn. So this thing is really small. This little mushroom is probably, you know, two, three centimeters tall. The cap's probably half a centimeter in diameter. And Alan always goes and does these really long timed exposures to look for bioluminescence. So I told him to go into the, you know, find a dark room and expose this thing as long as he could with his camera. And let's see if we can just get any bioluminescence out of it. So he went in there and did a 220 second exposure with his lens wide open and the sensitivity on his camera set to maximum. And sure enough, what we saw was that at the very base of the stipe where the mycelium is attaching that mushroom to the acorn, there's fungal bioluminescence. Okay, so even our North American species have bioluminescent mycelium, but our eyes can't detect it. Okay, so Alan had to set his camera on the most sensitive settings just to be able to capture this. And so what this tells me and, and other researchers is that when we look at these mushrooms, some of them glow at a bright enough level that human eyes can detect it if those eyes are allowed to adjust to darkness for you know, a, a good amount of time. There's probably many, many, many more species that are out there bioluminescing, but not at levels that human eyes can detect. So what folks have started doing nowadays is doing like Alan did here and doing these incredibly long exposures just to see if we can start to recognize or at least document bioluminescence in other mushroom species, particularly other species of the genus Mycena. And it turns out that many, many species of Mycena are indeed bioluminescent but not at levels that human eyes can detect, okay? So what I do in my laboratory is I have a, a fancy machine called a luminometer, which is just a little dark box that you put a mushroom or whatever you want inside of it. It actually measures the output of light that is coming off of that organism. So one of the things that I've started doing, I go out and I collect every mycena that I can. I bring it back to the lab and I put it in this luminometer to see if it does indeed produce any light even at levels that are so faint that my human eyes can't detect it, but the machine can. And so doing that, 
we've started building a database. And what we're finding is that there's a lot more out there, even in temperate North American populations and regions that are bioluminescent than we previously thought. All right. So just a few more, just to show you, I know we're, we're getting late on time here, so I'm not gonna belabor these, but you know, there's lots of wonderful, beautiful bioluminescent species. When you go to the tropics, there's a lot more out there that you can see with the unaided eye than there appear to be in our Northern temperate regions. Why this might be the case, I'll, I'll sort of allude to in just a few minutes, but just a, a few more shots. This one's one of my favorites. This is Mycena luxaturna, which means the eternal light. And this one is again, known only from Brazil. And it just has this incredibly bright stipe. It grows in these big clusters on wood, really a special mushroom to encounter out in the jungle. So let's see, Charles posts something here. Um, how efficient is the chemical production of photons in the reaction described? We don't really know. So we know that as eukaryotes that go through cellular respiration, we're pretty darn inefficient, right? So we all release heat as a byproduct of our metabolism. What I'm gonna talk about in just a few minutes is we think that these fungi might be doing something similar, that they are going through a metabolic process and rather than releasing energy as heat, like most of us do, they're actually releasing that excess energy as light. But we don't know how efficient they are um, for cellular respiration. That's something we haven't been able to measure just yet. All right, and then I'll end on this one just because my current project is working in the South Pacific in Vanuatu. And this is a Mycena species that I found uh, on a recent trip down there, pre-pandemic, of course, we've gone nowhere for the last year. But this is a really beautiful species that I found there. And I had a hunch it might be bioluminescent. So when we got back to the, the huts where we were staying that night, I photographed it. And again, just the stipes. So just the stipes of this, and I'm sure the mycelium as well, are bioluminescent, but not the pileus. And that's an undescribed species that I'll be putting a name on pretty soon. All right. So as I said before, there's over a hundred species of mushroom forming fungi that have been identified as bioluminescent. And it turns out about 107 of those are species of Mycena. And then you've got things like Armillaria and Omphalode is probably another you know, 20 species or so. So the bulk of what we know as being bioluminescent are species of Mycena. And as I just alluded to just a second ago, in the old days, you know, we would just basically lock ourselves in a dark room, see if we could see anything glowing. We would do that with both the mushrooms and the mycelium. And that's how we came up with this understanding of what was luminescent. Nowadays, what we're finding is that a lot of Mycena species are luminescent, just not at levels that our own eyes can detect. So fortunately, there's different ways that we can do this. You can do these incredibly long exposures with your digital camera is a great way to do it. Or if you have access to a luminometer that can measure incredibly small amounts of light being produced, you can use one of those as well. So I have a feeling that what we'll find in the coming years as we test more and more and more of these Mycena species and, and close related species, is that there's probably a lot of mushrooms out there that are still bioluminescing, but they're just doing it at levels that our own human eyes can't detect, okay? All right, so finally we get to the why. So why do mushrooms glow? We've talked about why insects do it. We know it could be to attract mates, it could be to attract prey, it could be to avoid a predator, whatever it might be, but why do mushrooms do it, right? Some of the early hypotheses that were put out there in the 1960s were basically that mushrooms glowed to attract insects to them. 
And those insects would come, they would eat the mushroom or crawl around on the mushroom. They'd get covered in the spores or they'd eat the spores. And then those, those insects would either fly or crawl away and they would defecate or drop the spores someplace else. So they're basically aiding the fungus and spore dispersal. Sounds great, right? That's a really cool hypothesis. Um, except it doesn't really work for species that don't have luminescent mushrooms. So keep in mind that many, many species, the mushrooms don't glow, but the mycelium does. But the mycelium is always either underground, breaking down dead wood, or it's embedded in some decaying log and not visible to, to organisms that are outside of that log. So that hypothesis doesn't really hold up for that. The other hypothesis that went along with that was that perhaps these mushrooms attract predators of insects that would otherwise feed on the mushrooms or perhaps the mycelia and thereby allow those mushrooms or that fungus to persist longer out in the environment. And this whole example of Mycenolux coli attracting these nocturnal spiders that eat other insects that are attracted to the light of the glowing mushrooms would support that. Okay, so it's kind of a cool idea. It was also thrown out there that maybe this is warning coloration, right? It's this idea that they're mimicking something in the environment that's toxic and by appearing toxic, insects or other animals won't eat them. Well, there's nothing out there in these environments that's bioluminescent and toxic. So they really couldn't be mimicking anything. And then finally, we get to what we think is the most logical answer. And that is that bioluminescence is just simply a metabolic byproduct. So it's an energy releasing waste product of a really important metabolic pathway. What we know is that when organisms break down wood, in particular, when fungi break down wood, they generate lots and lots of uh, free radicals, basically like reactive oxygen molecules in their cytoplasm and peroxidases and things like that. We know that some of the compounds in the biochemical pathway are powerful antioxidants. So it could be a situation where bioluminescence has evolved to allow these mushrooms to neutralize um, what could potentially be damaging molecules in their cytoplasm, okay? We also know that many of these fungi are tropical. So tropical environments are very warm, they're very moist, and it could be that it maybe was beneficial for these fungi to release energy as light rather than heat because they already live in a pretty darn warm environment in many cases. So based on what we know now, based on the fact that all of the bioluminescent mushrooms that we've documented so far are wood decomposers, it really lends a lot of support to this idea that it's this biochemical pathway that this phenomenon evolved as a way to allow these fungi to be very successful in breaking down wood and that they're creating compounds that are antioxidant that help neutralize certain byproducts of a wood decomposing metabolism. And they're also releasing excess energy as light as opposed to heat. However, what I like to remind folks of is that just because that may be how this pathway or this phenomenon evolved, doesn't mean that it hasn't been secondarily co-opted by evolution to benefit the fungus in some other way. So perhaps there is some benefit to having glowing mushrooms by attracting insects or insects that would otherwise eat fungivorous insects that might eat your mushroom. Okay, so we're, we're still working on that. Um, that's something that there's, there's actually some nice work being done down in Brazil right now where they made little plastic bioluminescent LED mushrooms and they've been putting them out in the jungle and seeing what insect orders they attract, showing that they do indeed track them. So that's, that's a, a topic for an, another talk later on, but that kind of work is being done right now to sort of summarize what we know so far. So as I said before, 
this is a very small percentage of mushrooms that are bioluminescent. Okay. So there's 1.5 million species of fungi. Conservatively, estimates go up to 5.3 and even beyond that. So about 10,000 species of mushroom forming. We've got less than 130 species that are bioluminescent. So we're talking about 0.005%. So an incredibly small number of mushroom species are actually bioluminescent. Okay. They occur in four distinct lineages, as I showed you. They all luminesce at that same wavelength. They produce that greenish yellow light that's in the 520 to 530 nanometer range. Okay, so they all produce light of the same wavelength. And some previous work done in the 60s and then again by our colleagues from Brazil really suggests that the luciferins and the luciferases from all four of those different lineages that are bioluminescent are probably the same. Okay, so one of the questions we had early on was, well, how many times did this phenomenon evolve? Was it a situation where when we look at the, at the evolution of this group, did each of the four lineages evolve bioluminescence independently or did it evolve a single time and then was lost by a bunch of other lineages? Let me show you the tree here about what that means. So if we look at these groups, we have these four lineages. You can imagine that if we look at a tree like this, we're going from the present to the past. So when we look at these deeper little inner nodes, you imagine if this is a plant, these nodes and inner nodes back here, those represent ancestors and whatever the condition was in that ancestral state. And so one of the things that we did early on was we wanted to know, well, what's the probability that each of these, the ancestor to each one of these lineages was bioluminescent? And what's the probability that the ancestor to all mushroom forming fungi in this group are bioluminescent? And so what you can see here from this tree, we look at these groups. So here's the Mycenaceae. So 90% probability that the ancestor to all Mycenae species was bioluminescent. Well, that's great. That's cool. It makes sense. That's you know a really diverse group of bioluminescent mushrooms there. What about the Lucentipes clade? Well, 93%, even better. Then we get down to things like the Omphalotaceae and the Physolacriaceae, and we get these estimates of a 55% probability that the ancestor to that group was bioluminescent and 86%. So that's all good and well. That's really exciting. It was really interesting. We can also ask the question, well, what's the probability that the ancestor to all of these lineages was bioluminescent? And we get a probability of 65%. So not very, you know, it doesn't tell us a whole lot. So this is a, a fun thing to do. It's a really great exercise to, to ask these questions. But at the end of the day, just like any type of science, it's very, um, you can bias it very, very easily. I'll say it that way. Okay, so depending on your sampling, you can very easily skew your results. In other words, the more species I have in this group that are bioluminescent or that I've been able to sample, the greater the probability is going to be here. So we know that this sort of you know, analysis is fraught with bias, but it's still our best attempt at this point in time to figure out, does the data suggest that there was a single origin or does the data suggest that there was multiple origins? What our data suggests is that there is probably multiple origins rather than a single origin. Okay, so keep that in mind. So that's all great. So that was our early analysis of this. Kind of you know, inconclusive, but that's what the data was pointing to at that point in time. Then we started working with the biochemists in Brazil. They started looking at the actual molecules that were involved in this process, as well as the pathway that produces these molecules. And Anderson Oliveira was doing his postdoctoral work and he came up to San Francisco State and worked with Dr. Desjardins and I and did this really, really nice, very elegant 
basically experiment while he was with us. And this is all relying upon this Neonothopandus uh, nambii and a few other species that we could get a lot of material of, or that we could grow a lot of material of, because he had to do these really big extractions to get all these compounds. And so what Anderson did was we wanted to know if you took the enzyme from one species and you combined it with the substrate from another species, in other words, if you took the luciferase from one species and combined it with the luciferin from another species and basically mixed them together in a tube, would the chemical reaction still occur and would light be produced? And so there's different ways that you extract these. You do a hot extract and a cold extract, whether you're getting the substrate or the enzyme. But we did these from all four lineages and then we had a control species which wasn't bioluminescent. So to explain this graph to you, what you have here, he took a hot extract from Armillaria melia, Neonothopanus gardneri, Geronema viridilucens, Mycena luxaturna. So those are the four bioluminescent lineages. And then we had Phyllobolitis grassless here. This is a non-bioluminescent control that we use. And so Anderson then did, basically took a cold extract and he mixed it and he did all the crosswise comparisons. And what he found was really amazing. If you take Armillaria melia substrate and you mix it with a Mycena enzyme, it glows. If you do the cross of that, it glows. So you can take these substrate and enzyme and mix them in any combination you want from these four lineages and you will always get light being produced. If you combine either of them with the control, you get no light being produced, right? So this was just phenomenal. This was absolutely mind blowing result because it pointed and really proved that it was the same exact biochemical pathway or at least the same substrate and enzyme molecules that were being used in all four of these lineages. So what that tells us is that the bioluminescence likely evolved only a single time in this whole group of mushrooms. But that means that in all these other lineages that don't contain any bioluminescent species, that means it was lost. So in other words, the ancestor to all these mushroom forming fungi was bioluminescent, but the ability to bioluminesce was lost. And if we think about 10,000 species of mushrooms and only maybe 130, 150 of them are bioluminescent, that's a whole lot of mushrooms whose ancestors lost the ability to bioluminesce, right? So which I think is really, really amazing when you think about it. And that's the, the last slide that I'm gonna show you. What I will do is I'll give you an update on this. So back in 2018, our colleagues in Brazil and our colleagues in Russia published a really nice paper where they finally did isolate at least four of the genes that are responsible for bioluminescence in these organisms. And what they were able to show was that these genes evolved in a stepwise fashion through something called gene duplications. And I'm not gonna go into the genetics of that, but otherwise it just means that a gene has been duplicated in the fungal genome. And once there's more than one copy, that second copy is basically free to mutate and evolve into something else. So through that process, we see that there was at least three gene duplication events that led to the production of all the genes that produce the enzymes that are responsible for this bioluminescent pathway. Okay, and so what we see is that that happened stepwise fashion in the ancestor to all these mushrooms 
but then one or more of these genes has been lost or essentially become non-functional in all these other groups. So now we have a pretty good idea and a pretty good hypothesis that through stepwise evolution of multiple enzymes, bioluminescence evolved, but then was subsequently lost by the ancestors to a huge diversity of organisms throughout the evolution of this group. Okay, and so that's sort of where things stand right now. We're still continuing to work on this, of course. So what we're doing at the moment is we are finding species pairs. So if you look at some of these mycenas, you might have one species that's bioluminescent and then its closest relative is not. And if we sequence the entire genomes of both of those organisms and compare them, we can really begin to look at where they differ. And that'll help us pinpoint other genes that might be responsible for this, this biochemical pathway. And so that's where things stand right now. That's sort of our, our best guess at why these fungi are doing it and how they're doing it. Okay. And so with that, I will say thank you all for your patience and uh, attention and hanging in there. And I need to thank all these folks for uh, their, their specimens and photographs. And of course, the National Science Foundation for funding. Can't forget them. And if anyone has questions, I'm happy to take them. Great stuff, Brian. This is Greg. Question. Yes. Is it um, untenable to think of, you know, horizontal gene transfer to explain this? I think of, you know, there's some document, I think, some documentation for amnitoxins to be, you know, mm -hmm. across different lineages because of, of horizontal gene transfer. Could that have happened in this case? Instead of having an uh, ancestor being and have all those losses? Yeah, it certainly makes sense. What's really cool about it is, I mean, we know that there's at least at this point, there's four genes that are involved in the pathway and those are really the genes that code for those enzymes. And then there's a bunch of other genes that we see that are either, you know, really close by or they're part of a, a cassette. And basically because of the way we've reconstructed the evolution using full genomes, it really does look like you can basically, you can go and you can map where the duplication events occur on the phylogeny but that doesn't mean that there wasn't horizontal transfer to other lineages, but it certainly does look like the duplication events happened really early on. And this is kind of why we want to get more and more genomes so we can really look at this. Um, part of the, what's interesting is that if you look at something like armillaria, like all the genes occur in basically a cassette, they're all right there, really close to one another. But if you go and look at species of Geronema or Mycena that are bioluminescent, they've moved around. So what we also see is that these genes do not occur in the same chromosomes or in the same region of the genome. So at this stage, we need, we need a lot more data is what we need to sort of track this down and see if, if indeed it is gene transfer um, going on or if these things have just basically been shuffled around and moved around. So yeah, cool. but yeah, definitely a possibility. All right, so I'm just looking at a few questions from the chat here. So uh, Finn McGowan says, any thoughts on why Western Ophelotus is so variable in its bioluminescence? You know, it seems it's probably a substrate issue is what we're thinking. So what we notice is a lot of times, Ophelotus is one of our favorites because we can collect it, bring it back to the laboratory and then grow it on grain. And different grains have different amounts of caffeic acid in them. Of course, I didn't, we didn't know caffeic acid was necessary until my biochemist friend, I was complaining to him that our omphalotus cultures would 
would glow. And he goes, oh, well, you have to give him caffeic acid. And I said, what? He goes, oh, yeah, that's, that's part of the paper that's coming out. We know that caffeic acid is basically the, the base of the whole reaction. It's got to have that. So if you can supplement the substrate with caffeic acid, all of a sudden everything starts glowing. So what we know now is that some substrates are more rich in caffeic acid than are others. And so I have a feeling that the concentration of caffeic acid in whatever it is that mushroom is eating, it probably plays a really large role in how intense its bioluminescence is going to be. And that may also explain why something like Pinellas stipticus, why European populations appear to not be luminescent and Western North American populations also appear non-luminescent, but the Eastern populations are luminescent. So it could be a total substrate issue. All right. So let's see. So Joseph says, what do you think caused the loss of bioluminescence? So for so many mushrooms, uh, was it an event? Is it a frail chain? Yeah, it's a really good question. So what we know is that because there's so many genes involved in the pathway, if one of those genes evolves a mutation that renders it non-functional, the whole pathway stops functioning. So what we see is that um, this is one of the other things we're really looking at right now is looking at species that are non-luminescent, um, but very close related to luminescent species and trying to see, can we actually isolate the mutation that rendered that pathway non-functional? So there could just be a single mutation in one of the genes that, that makes it non-functional. And then these things would just stop luminescing. So it's probably just a series of very, very simple mutations um, that led to the the non-production of light in so many species. All right. Any other questions, folks? I'm scanning through the chat right here to see if there's anything I missed. So Loki says, uh, if I want to go to coffee plantation, let you know, absolutely. <laughs> I would love to. I lived in Hawaii for a number of years and I always wanted to go and, and over to Kona side and see if the coffee farmers over there would let me wander around their, their plantations. But I have a feeling if the, if the fungus was there, we would have known because in Hawaii, they were so on top of, of plant pathogens. All right. Okay. I think that's all the questions I have in the chat. Oh, so here someone says, all right. Maybe they're eaten out of existence. Could be. Um, uh, what would be the most common mushroom we can look for in Northern Illinois? I would assume that Pinellas dipticus is there. Um, it's a, you find it growing on hardwoods. So that should be one that you could go out and look for. And then Omphalotus um, should be there. I think we have, there's the Western Omphalotus, the Western, or sorry, the Eastern Jack-O-Lantern should be pretty common there. So that should be another one. I didn't have any photos of it in the talk, but that's another one that does occur there that absolutely should be bioluminescent. Yeah, the jack land is probably the easiest thing to find. The Pinellas is around. Yeah, Pinellas are really small. <laughs> yeah, they're small. But the jack land, yeah, you can find, yeah, big, yeah. big chunks of those. So, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and for those of you that do go out, um, you know, it's something that if you go out on a moonless night, you know, that's great. But realize that light pollution makes it incredibly difficult to see these things. So what I always recommend is that you collect the mushrooms um, bring them back and then, you know, lock yourself in a, in a dark room. I think as David Aurora says, bring a sandwich because you're going to get really bored. Um, but, you know, it's, it takes a while. I've, some of the cultures, you know, these Petri plates that I have with bioluminescent mycelium on them, I would have to lock myself in like the, you know, the room with the freezers and stuff for a good 20 or 30 minutes before my eyes could, um, could register the, 
the bioluminescence. So if you have a camera that you can set, that's a lot easier way to do it. But it's pretty neat to see it with your own eyes. Yeah, the intensity is so amazing. So I've had phone calls where people said there it was a dark night, you know, moonless night, that their wood pile was on fire. Yeah. Right. And so the mycelium, probably our malaria, was so much that they actually thought their pile was on was on fire. It was on fire, yeah. It's it's amazing. And um, you know, hence the hence the common name for it. And we always thought that we really didn't have Foxfire, you know, here in the West, but when we were up at um, the Soma camp that the two years ago. Someone brought in a big hunk of wood that they collected out in the woods and they saw it because someone had come by earlier in the day and sort of torn apart this log looking for mushrooms. And then later on that night, someone was walking back to their cabin through the woods and they saw this big pile of glowing wood and they brought it in and we could see it just right there. You just had to basically kind of go around the corner from where there was light and you'd look down and you could see the glowing wood. So yeah, foxfires are really, it can be really bright for sure. Very cool stuff. So it's just a fun aside. One time I, I saved uh, federal, uh, saved all our taxpayers millions of dollars because somebody found a piece of wood that was glowing and they swore it was a super fun, should be a super fun site. <laughs> and they wanted to do this, but I had to prove to them that it was just a foxfire. <laughs> but uh, they for, for, thought for sure it was a super fun site. That's fantastic. <laughs> Love it. All right. Oh, and you know, the one thing is um, I'm surprised no one asked this. Everyone always asked is, is it possible to use something like CRISPR to transfer these genes into other organisms and make them glow? And the answer is yes. So our colleagues in Brazil and Russia, they actually um, really great. They used the genes, they transfer them into a yeast that they're using for biofuel production. And so the nice thing is you can take this yeast and you can inoculate, you know, sugarcane bagasse or something like that. And you can very easily determine if your fungus took and has properly inoculated the plant biomass by just turning off the lights and looking into the chamber and it'll all be glowing. So they're able to transform it into yeasts. And then of course, they at some point someone decided they needed to make some money. So our, our collaborators in Russia and some folks in the UK transformed it into plants. And so right now they have glowing um, tobacco plants and the plan is is to, pretty much have natural lighting. So transform this into a, a number of plants. So you could just plant them all throughout your backyard. And at night, you could turn off the lights and all your plants would be glowing. It's pretty amazing. It does work. <laughs> so, so it's coming. That's why I was wondering about the efficiency of the chemical reaction, if that can be improved through the, no, she yeah. muted me out. Yeah. I bet so. I mean, my feeling is um, from talking to my, my colleague in Brazil, he, you know, he was one that said it really comes down to the concentration of caffeic acid. So it could be something where you're just constantly supplementing the, um, the organism with caffeic acid. And I know that like we were growing it on, I think we had wheat. It was like winter wheat or something that I bought at Whole Foods. And um, he said, oh, you could use rye. It's got more caffeic acid. Sure enough, we did. And boom, it started glowing. No problem. So it does make a really big difference. Yeah, what are sources of caffeic acid? Like what sort of substrates naturally contain large amounts of that? It's pretty common. So like I, you know, when he said caffeic acid, I was thinking this was something, you know, had to do with caffeine or something like that and caffeine producing plants, but it's not. It's a really widespread metabolite. Almost, you know, most decaying wood out there is full of caffeic acid. Most of the grains that we use, <laughs> I just saw someone got bit by a dog there. Um, most of the grains that we use have a fair amount of it. It's just some have more than others. And I think if you go online, 
you can actually look for um, like amounts of caffeic acid in different substrates. I think that information is out there. That's cool. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. But she didn't get bit. They were just playing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> She's an aggressive kisser. I was gonna say big dog kiss. There you go. Yeah. I think what we did is we had caffeic acid in the chemistry lab and we just added some of it to the medium and yeah, it did a, it did a job. Yeah. I think about like a glowing garden, like you say, and I've heard about other things of people, you know, it's novel to introduce bioluminescence into things. And even people talk about, you know, injecting them in your body or having glowing tattoos or glowing (laughs) beers or things like that. But the idea of a glowing, you know, topiary in your yard is pretty fascinating, but then you would want to make sure that you fed it a substrate allow it to glow. Yep, for sure. And I know I had heard at one point, someone kept telling me that they were going to have bioluminescent plants at like Disneyland or something like that. And this was well before, you know, the, <laughs> this, this, they've been able to transform it into, into tobacco, but uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see. I haven't heard, but I know that they had been contacted really early on by some company, I think in the Netherlands, it was trying to create basically like energy free light. So you could basically have lighting fixtures in your home that would be completely biologically powered. And they were, you know, super on top of it. So I'm sure these folks will patent it and make oodles of money at some point. But it'll be cool. There's a really nice, I actually have, let me see if I can, if you folks want to hang in there for one sec. Let me see if I have it. I think I have it in this slide. Yeah. Hold on one sec. Let me share my screen with you all. So this is the company. They made a little sort of proof of concept video and released it on the internet to drum up support. I'm not sure if you'll be able to hear it. It just has sort of ethereal music playing, but um, this is the, these are the plants. These are the tobacco plants that have the genes for bioluminescence inside of them. Now, why did they choose tobacco? Is it that it's a crop like cannabis that people want to steal at night? <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, that's first... a serious question. No, I think it's just the first one that it took in. I think they, they tried Arabidopsis and all these things, but tobacco is just really easy to grow and it was really easy to transform. Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, we have people that used yeah. to grow in Northern California and there was, there's always robberies in the middle of the night. You pay local kids to yeah. sit up at night on a, you know, with a shotgun to guard your crops and, it would make sense to make cannabis that glows at night. I know these would buy that stuff up, you know, but um, that's our but cannabis, the, yeah. Yeah, but the, I mean, yeah, but the tobacco's an interesting choice. I wanted to chose that. Yeah, it probably comes down to the fact that we they did so much work on tomatoes um, with the flavor saver. Like we've done, we've inserted so many genes into tomatoes to make the flavor saver and all that kind of stuff that there was probably already a, a and the tobacco and tomato are are really closely yep. related. So it probably had to do with the ease of transforming the genome of, of tobacco. Well, think but of the light pollution if they inoculated like grass, like a lawn. Yeah. That'd be terrible. Yeah, like light everywhere. But yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the plan is to make this, um, it's a highly encodable system is how they refer to it. So the idea is, is that you could basically transform it into whatever you needed. <laughs> now it's my pleasure, folks. I'm always, always happy to talk about fungi. All Brian, right. how, how can we follow Brian's work and other things that you do? Yeah, so my, my website is really easy. It's just perrymycolab.com. I'll type, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't really get a chance to, to tell you folks where I'm at. I'm a professor at California State University, East Bay. So you can find me really easily there. And that's my lab website. It's just perrymycolab.com. And you can find me there.
Thanks, Brian. See you later. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Greg. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Bye.